0: Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the breakfast that uh, Mark provided, and thank you for the guys who come and make the coffee and uh, help set up and just get everything ready so that we can come and study your word together. Lord, I pray this morning that your uh, spirit would be here in power, speaking to each one of us, uh, helping us understand this text uh, and be able to walk away with some application for our lives. Uh, Father, we... uh, we want to grow in our knowledge of the gospel, our appreciation of the gospel, uh, so, that, so that we can live it out and, and fully know and understand just exactly what you've done for us, and that we would share it with others. Uh, so, Father, uh, just bring that to our mind today as we uh, spend time in chapter 2 of Romans. Lord, we love you, and we give you this day, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 2. We're going to attempt to do the entire chapter, okay? So we're starting to take bigger chunks. Next week, we're going to do chapter 3 and chapter 4 together. So um, don't panic. It's doable. Um, We'll get through this. But this morning, we're going to take on chapter 2. And uh, what I want to continually remind you is as we study the book of Romans, don't forget the context, okay? So... Don't forget from where we've come that we're really talking about the gospel. And so we'll, we'll touch on that again this morning. But as you dig into some of these chapters, they're going to be pretty heavy, pretty intense, a lot of information. We're not going to be able to dig into every single thing that it says, but we're going to take bigger themes and try to look at bigger themes uh, as we move along. But never forget the context. It's about the gospel. So we're just going to read the first few verses of chapter 2 this morning and then kind of go through the, the chapter in general. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we're going to stop right there and kind of look at it this morning. If, if you look at these first verses, you, you see a theme coming up and it, it's over and over again. It's about judging, judges, the judge, judgment. Judgment. He goes on and he talks about the judgment of God, righteous judgment of God. So it's, it's pretty easy to say that this is probably about judgment. Um, not, a, not a real popular topic, right? Uh, nobody wants to talk about judgment. Nobody, nobody wants to talk about the wrath of God and nobody wants to talk about the judgment of God. But those two things are linked. They, they go hand in hand. So what does that have to do with what Paul's been trying to say it's the theme of the chapter. It's judgment. He's going to start out talking about man's judgment of others, but then God's judgment of man. And so we've got to figure out what he's trying to say. So it's really, at the end of the day, it's about the justice of God's judgment. That God is free and right and just in his judgment. Now, you and I aren't. Because we have limited understanding. When we judge all the time, we judge one another. We judge the lost. We judge the saved. We judge all kinds of people based on limited understanding. And um, he's going to warn us against that. And, and one of the things you got to uh, look for when you're reading the book of Romans is that um, you'll see him changing like tenses. He'll, he'll talk about, he'll use you, and then he'll talk about us and we, and he'll go from different tenses Uh, personal pronouns, and and he uses in this chapter uh, what was pretty popular in his day and age, which was called a a diatribe. And it's basically, if you were having a, a talk with somebody and you wanted to get something across to them, but you didn't want to offend them, you would basically bring in a third party, an anonymous third party, and you say, well, they have a problem with lust. And the inference is, you don't. I know you don't, but they do. What you're really doing is you're talking to them. You're just not admitting it. And, and so that's kind of what he does in here. He's going to talk about you in these first verses. And you got to keep in mind, he has two audiences he's talking to, really one audience made up of two groups. It's believers in Rome, but it's made up of converted Gentiles and converted Jews. And so he's got two different groups he's really talking to. And chapter 2 is predominantly directed at Jews, Jewish believers in the church. And so he's going to start out talking to this this kind of third-party group, you judge. And he's using a technique just to basically make a point without officially offending them, which is kind of interesting because Paul never seemed to have problems offending anybody, um, which is one of the reasons I like him. Um, he, he's going to basically tell them God is the only one who has the right to judge. Only God is qualified to judge. He's the only one who's righteous, truly righteous. I'm not righteous. You're not righteous. Who am I to judge somebody else because I'm really not righteous? And he's also the only one really qualified to pass sentence. Now, one of the things that's dangerous about judging somebody else is, especially in this context when he talks about judgment, he's talking about judgment And also passing sentence. And and so when we judge somebody, in a way we're also passing sentence. We're saying, you know, you're you're X, you're Y, you're this, and therefore God's going to punish you. We not only judge, we pass judgment. And, And I'm not qualified to do either of those things as a sinful man, as an unrighteous man, even though I know Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within me, I can still practice a wrong kind of judgment. And so he's basically telling them that you got to be careful. Don't pass judgment. Now, why would he say that? Well, if you remember last week, we looked at some things that had to do with sexual immorality, uh, that had to do with godlessness run amok, God, godlessness left to its devices will always lead to unrighteousness or wickedness. And so he's, he's talking to believers, and he's specifically talking to Jewish believers who are probably in the audience listening to this letter being read and going, yeah, you tell them, Paul, because we go to church with those people. They're all Gentiles, and those people are evil and wicked. And they're, see, even the Jewish believers were bringing over their kind of propensity to hate Gentiles because they, they had been raised to hate Gentiles. Gentiles were by the Jews considered to be dogs. Uh, They looked down on Gentiles. So now here comes the church and God has this wonderful sense of humor. And he brings into the church, both Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men and women. And everybody's what? Equal. And Paul, being a Jew, knew the Jews, and and even though they were saved, they were redeemed, they were probably looking down their noses at these Gentile believers and thinking, chapter 1 was all about them. And he's going to let them know, no, it's all about you and them. It's about all of us. So God is the only one worthy to judge So he says in those first verses, therefore you, again, remember it's kind of a diatribe. He's talking about this third-party group. You, therefore, have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, again, keep the context. He's been talking about evil in the world, immorality, um, godlessness, wickedness, unrighteousness. And then he says, you don't have any excuse to judge, O man. And he uses a similar term or it's actually the same term, no excuse, that he used earlier. So they are without excuse. Those people in chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, who were living a certain lifestyle, living in immorality, practicing homosexuality, practicing all kinds of manner of evil and and immorality, he, he basically says they are without excuse. And again, he knew that within his audience there were probably people going, yeah. You're exactly right. They are without excuse, but not not me. I don't have that problem. I'm okay. But he says, No, you have no excuse. If you're gonna judge them, if you think you're free from judgment, the judgment of God, and you're gonna judge them, you miss the point. You totally miss the point. He says, In actuality, you condemn yourself. When you judge them, when you say they're evil, they're bad, I'm not, you basically judge yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, you've got to keep in mind, when this is being read to the church, can you imagine these Jewish believers hearing this? They're not stupid. They, they knew what a diatribe was. They knew that writing technique. And they knew he's probably talking to us. And they had to take offense to this because it basically says, you practice the very same things. And there was this kind of a, wait a minute. I don't practice that. You know, within the, the Jewish community, there was an, an abhorrence to homosexuality. They hated it. They despised it. Doesn't mean they didn't practice it. They just hated it. And, and Because it was part of their understanding of the law of God that nobody would do that, and the wrath of God falls on those who do. So they had this outward hatred towards it much like we do within the church sometimes that we can be very vehemently opposed to it hate it despise it and yet not realize that sometimes we have problems with similar things if not the same thing and so he's saying no you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things now is he saying you do them all i don't think so he's just saying when you when you judge be careful that you're not practicing doing the same things, similar things, some of the things, maybe all of the things. And sometimes I've found in my life the things I judge the hardest in others are things that I typically have trouble with in my own life. It's just funny how that happens. When when somebody lacks uh, integrity and you judge that, you might want to take a real long look at your own life and realize that maybe I have a problem with integrity. Or when you judge somebody for their dishonesty, maybe you need to take a look at your own life and wonder if maybe that's something I have a problem with. Because there's something about condemning it in somebody else that makes us feel better. But he's basically saying that you might want to shine the mirror on yourself, you who practice the same things. Well, what are the things he's talking about? Let's go back to that wonderful list we looked at last week. We're not going to concentrate on the... Women with women, men with men, homosexuality, lesbianism. We're not going to go there, but we're going to look at the verses we all ignore in chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, and it's this. They're full of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient, parent, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Kind of a different list than homosexuality, right? Right? We can all find it in our hearts to hate that, especially if we aren't prone to it, attracted to it, tempted by it. But what do you do with this list? These are included in the things. When he says, you do the same things, you who judge others, you practice the same things. It's these things, deceit, maliciousness, wanting to harm, slandering others, gossip. See, we don't get off, right? And he's trying to tell these Jews, Christian Jews, believing Jews, converted Jews that, hey, don't be quick to judge the Gentiles. Yeah, they're bringing all kinds of baggage with them from their past, their paganism. But you know what? So are you. Don't be quick to judge because only God has the right to judge. So he's really talking about within the context of that local community, these self-righteous hypocrites. Now, he's following an example of Christ, right? Because who who is the group that Jesus had the greatest um, animosity towards when he walked the earth? It was the self-righteous hypocrite who happened to take the form of the religious leaders of the Jewish community, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. He, He was always getting into debates with them about their hypocrisy. He called them whitewashed tombs, right? Hey, you're pretty on the outside, but you're full of bone bones and decay on the inside. You worry about the external, but you don't worry about the internal. And so really Paul's just following that. And he's saying, you got to be really careful. If you judge others, you really are a self-righteous hypocrite. I mean, go back to the list. We all struggle with all of those in some way, some form at one time or another. And so it's the religious snob who's always looking down his nose at those who struggle And I find that that's true in the church today because, you know, when we put you around tables, I know it's uncomfortable, and I don't mean the seating arrangement, it's just being around other guys. You would love it if you could just sit wherever you want every week and just kind of move around and not get to know anybody because you're a guy. But we make you sit with the same guys, and our goal is, our hope is that there will be a sense of community, right, and some openness and accountability and some sharing and, but when you do that, the natural thing that happens with men in particular, but human beings in general, is what? We, we find somebody at that table who's more screwed up than we are. And we, we find some uh, hope in that. You know, Man, that guy, his prayer requests are so screwed up. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And we feel better about ourselves. And he's saying, man, don't look down your nose at these guys. Converted Jews, don't look down your nose at these Gentiles. And they were because they thought, hey, we're better because we're Jews first, and then we happen to be converted Jews. And so we're doubly good. Like We're like God's chosen people, now we're saved. They're just Gentiles. They got like half the deal. And so they're looking down their noses and he's saying, man, don't do that. Don't become this moral elitist who thinks that chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, do not apply to me. And see, that's my big problem with those of us who use those verses as a kind of a saber that we rattle every time same-sex marriage comes up, homosexuality comes up. Does it teach against those things? Yes. But we, we forget that. It's not just talking about that. It's talking about godlessness and wickedness of all kinds. And yet we somehow think that that chapter, those verses, don't apply to me. And Paul was smart enough to know that when he wrote this letter, there were going to be people who sat there and went, man, preach it, Paul. I think I've told you guys before, when I was growing up, my dad was Southern Baptist, and so I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. And one of the things that always drove me crazy because I couldn't understand how it worked was why do certain men in the church say amen when my dad was preaching? And there was a group of men, it wasn't every man, but there was a group of men in the church that all, when my dad would preach, they would go, amen, amen. And I'm like, what did he say? It wasn't that good. <laughs> you know, it's just, he yeah, he's my dad, but it wasn't that profound. And it, it took me years to realize that most men who say that say it because they want to give the impression that I'm not convicted, convict somebody else. So in other words, it's a powerful truth or it's some, something that I don't want it to look like I'm being convicted or that it applies to me. So if I say amen, I'm agreeing with you that somebody else needs to hear that. And that's really, yeah, amen, Yeah. See, we got to be really careful with this thing about judging one another because we do it around our tables. We do it in small groups. We do it all the time. And and he's basically saying, man, don't don't judge. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be a moral elitist. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus tells a story, and you know the story, to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. So it kind of fits our context, Right. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. Man, I have never prayed that prayer. I've I've probably thought about praying that prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not, not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, you can see why Jesus had such a problem with the Pharisees and the religious leaders because that was kind of rampant in their mentality, that I'm not like them. They even believed they were better than the average Jew. They not only called the Gentiles dogs, they considered the average Jew a dog. And it was the average Jew, because their incapability of keeping the law, they were They were keeping the kingdom kingdom from being ushered in. They were basically holding back the Messiah from coming. It's your fault because you're not as righteous as we are. And so Jesus himself says, man, don't, don't look down your nose. Don't become this moral elitist. I love this from John Bradford. I never knew where this phrase came from, but it came from John Bradford. And it's, but for the grace of God go I. You know, I often talk about coffee cup verses, That's not a verse, but that ought to go on every coffee cup and every office that every one of us occupy because it's true, but for the grace of God go I. So when you look down your nose at someone else, be it homosexuals, be it people who cheat on their wives, people who cheat on their taxes, whoever you're looking down, just always remember, it. but for the grace of God go I. And the concept, the idea comes from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out a special favor on me and not without results. Whatever you are right now, however righteous you may be, however good you may be, it's only because of the grace of God. And if left to your devices, where would you be? Go back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. That's where you would be. That's the pattern of the world. Godlessness, moving away from God. And I'm telling you guys, if you decide at any moment that I'm tired of reading the Bible, I'm tired of praying because it doesn't work, I'm really sick of going to church, you will begin a pattern of godlessness. You will begin to live as if God does not exist, and it will not go well for you any more than it does for an unbeliever. I'm not telling you you're going to lose your salvation, but you will lose your joy, you'll lose your contentment, you'll find no satisfaction in anything, because that's not how you were wired. That's not what Christ died to bring you. So, don't judge. Don't judge others. Why? Because when we do, basically, we don't understand the nature and extent of sin. When he's talking to these Jewish Christians who are looking down their nose at the Gentile believers in the church, they really, just like the... Tax collector, I mean, the Pharisee, I don't sin. See, they had this really weird view of sin. They really believed that because they were God's chosen people, even if they did sin, God wouldn't hold it against them. And it's that same warped view that some of us have as believers that, well, if I sin, he has to forgive me. I think it was Voltaire who said, you know, God has to forgive because that's the business he's in. That's a dangerous game to play. Does God forgive? Yes, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But don't play games with God and go, well, I can do whatever I want. I can sin whenever I want because he has to forgive me. That's the business he's in. No, he's still a holy, righteous, just God. And that's really the point he's trying to make in these verses. A moral elitist is blind to his own faults. If you're one of those guys that's always quick to see the faults in others, you might want to stop and take stock of your own life. And see, what what does God want to do in my life? He has an overinflated sense of self-worth. That was one of the problems the Pharisees had, is that they thought so highly of themselves. They always wanted the best place in the synagogue, the best seats. They wanted to be honored all the time. They worried so much about how they were viewed by others. And so we got to be careful of the same things. He's overly judgmental of the sins of others. I love pointing out your sins. I really do. Because it makes me think less about my sins, right? You know, I've told you before, I have the gift of sarcasm. Sarcasm is really an extension of that. Sarcasm is a tool to bring somebody else down so that you feel better. I hate to admit that because I love sarcasm. But sarcasm is never meant to encourage anybody. It's not. It's meant to demean somebody, tear somebody down, make you feel better, make you look funny, and the, and, but you leave these bodies in your wake of people that you've harmed. I, I remember, you know, Facebook has a lot of good things about it. It's got probably a lot of bad things about it, but um, it's allowed me to go back and connect with some people that I went to high school with in New York. And one of the people I connected with, and I can't remember how it happened, but it was a, a girl named Donna Patella. Donna... Uh, was the skinniest person I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, just like a rail skinny. And I used to belittle her relentlessly in high school. I mean, just make fun of her, sarcastic jokes about her. I, I used her as a tool to use my sarcasm to make me feel better. And it's always bugged me. And I ran across her name on Facebook and it took everything in me to contact her because I thought, man, this woman is going to hate my guts and has probably prayed down the curses of God on my life ever since high school. (laughs) What I didn't know is that she had come to know Christ, not through me. She knew my dad was a pastor, but she didn't know anything about Jesus through me. But she came to know Christ sometime after high school, and we had a great conversation over Facebook, and I asked her to forgive me. And she said, I I forgave you years ago. See, guys, I shouldn't look down on anybody, whether it's physical issues, financial issues, their marital issues, whatever they're going through. I don't have any right to judge them or look down on them. And if I do, I somehow, I'm basically saying I'm immune to God's judgment. And if I wish God's judgment on anybody, I need to be really careful. Because in a way, I'm saying, yeah, God, judge them, but I'm not worthy of judgment because I'm a pretty good guy. I got my act together, but they're screwed up. See, this is a dangerous place for us to go. And he goes on and he talks about the fact that you are basically snubbing your nose at God's kindness. And you're basically saying, hey, look at me. I'm successful. My life's going great. My marriage is healthy. I don't have any problem with porn or whatever. And therefore, God approves of me. God's perfectly okay with the way I live my life and see we take the grace of God the mercy of God the kindness of God and we mistake it for his approval of everything that we do and that was the problem the Jews had is they really believe that i'm okay and so i can snub my nose and i can look at others and i can judge them and he says no do not judge don't judge others but he says because of your hard and impenitent heart you're storing up wrath for yourself in the, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to suffer God's wrath. I'm not, I don't have to worry about the judgment of God. Well, yeah, you do. You really do. You don't have to worry about eternal condemnation. You don't have to worry about eternal separation from God, but you will suffer the judgment of God. The Scriptures are real clear. It's something that we don't like to talk about. See, everybody's going to have their works judged when it comes to the end. The basis of God's judgment is always works. Now, be real careful with this. I'm a believer. If you're a believer, you are made right with God based on what? The righteousness of Christ, based on faith in that, not your works. But your works still matter to God. Right? So the base of God's judgment of us and of unbelievers will be our works. It doesn't mean that you will be saved by your works. Rather, believers will give an account of their works and nonbelievers will be judged according to their works. See, here's here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a judgment for believers. There's going to be a judgment for non-believers. The non-believers are going to be judged on the only thing they can be judged by. What? Their works. And guess what? Everybody fails. But we as believers will be judged on our works, not for salvation, but for rewards. Now, I don't fully understand the whole concept of rewards in heaven. Is your house going to be bigger than my house? And if it is, will it matter? Because there's no jealousy in heaven. So I, I'm not, I don't understand the whole idea of rewards in heaven. And the way I've always kind of understood it is that at some point, we're going to recognize whatever works I've done after coming to Christ, that will be judged. But you know what? I'll realize that anything I'm rewarded for was because of Christ. And ultimately, he gets the reward. He gets the honor. We must all stand before Christ to be judged, Paul tells the Corinthians. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body since coming to Christ. Your works will be judged. So don't just get cocky and confident and go, well, I know I'm going to heaven, so you know I screwed up this week. It's okay. I don't really have to share my faith. I don't really need to read the Bible. I don't really need to live as a Christian. I'm getting there. I'm secure. No. Your works will be judged and there will be rewards and a lack of rewards. Why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God as believers. So be careful when you judge. And I love this in 1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay any foundation other than the one we have already laid, Jesus Christ, the gospel. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, whatever you've done since coming to Christ, when it's judged, if it survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. Your salvation? No. But you will go through loss. You will feel the loss of, man, if only I had. It's the last time anyone will feel regret in heaven. Sadness, sorrow, and then it's gone. But but think about that. Do you want to go through that? Do you want to experience that? Yes, you're going to still get into heaven. He says the builder will be saved. But like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames, you'll get in singed. Your eyebrows singed, your hair singed. And I don't know that that's the way I want to go in. So our works do matter. How we live our lives do, does matter. So I, who am I to judge somebody else, believer or non-believer? I, I need to leave that up to God. None of us have the right to condemn and judge anyone believer, unbeliever, because none of us deserve grace more than anyone else. We're all on the same plane. I really think that's the whole point of chapter 2 is Paul's just trying to get them to understand. Hey, Jew, converted Jew, hey, converted Gentile, you're all on equal ground. Everybody stands on level ground at the foot of the cross. Nobody is any higher than anybody else. So it includes Jews in the church. It also includes the Gentiles. Nobody deserves it. Why? Because God shows no partiality. Verse 11. I, I love that. I love that about God that he shows no partiality. We do, right? We're, we're obsessed with partiality based on how somebody looks, the kind of car they drive. Are they like me? Do they live like me? Are they witty like me? You know, that, that's how we live our life, but God shows no partiality. So the Pharisee was no better off than the tax collector because God looks down and they're all on equal ground. We're all worthy of what? Judgment, not your judgment. At the end of the day, I should really care less about what you think of me. The sad thing is I do because we all have the fear of man. I should worry more about what does God think of me because he's my judge. You may not always like what I say. You may not always agree with what I say, but at the end of the day, as long as I can stand before God and say, I said what you told me to say, I need to be okay with that. If next week this room is half full, I will be highly disappointed, but I've got to keep trusting God that you're bringing them in, that you want to hear what you're telling me to hear. Now, I'm fully capable of misinterpreting God and saying the wrong thing and botching this whole thing, but Ultimately, God's my judge. You're not my judge. For it is not the hearers of the law, he says, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He tells these Jews, hey, guys, yeah, you got the law. You're Jews. God gave you the law. You're special in God's eyes. You're the apple of his eye. But the problem is you don't do the law. Having the law doesn't matter if you're not going to obey it. It still goes back to what? Obedience. It still goes back to faith. Are you going to really trust God? The fact that you have the law means nothing. God's judgment is so perfect that he takes into account one's moral perception and rendering judgment. To be sure, no one escapes condemnation. All, sh- all falls short. None measure up to their own moral perceptions of right and wrong, let, let alone God's law. See, he's basically saying the Gentiles... Never had the law of God, right? It wasn't given to them. It was given to the Jews. But they have built within them a moral perception. That's why every culture has right and wrong. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't take your neighbor's cow. Don't take your neighbor's wife. It's built into, it's wired into mankind. And so they obey those laws or attempt to obey those laws. The Jews had the law written out for them on tablets of stone. So it was really clear in what? They still disobeyed it. So don't get cocky just because you had the law and God gave it to you and you're some special person. Well, you are, but you still disobeyed the law. And that's what he talks about in these verses. And all he's trying to tell them is, you're still both the same. You still disobey God. You still break the law. Being a Jew isn't going to help you. And he's going to take chapters to, to hammer that, that home. Why? Because it was a huge problem in the early church. It, it, it was dividing the church. That's why he says in verse 17, it, You call yourself a Jew. And again, he's talking in a diatribe style. He's, he's basically saying, You, somebody out there, third person, you call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You boast in God. You know his will. You approve what is excellent. You've been instructed in the law. You think you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. You think you're an instructor of fools. You think you're a teacher to children. And in a way, they are. They were meant to be. But had they been? No. They were special. They still are special. They're God's chosen people. But they still don't live according to his standards. They still don't keep his law. They still don't fulfill the very things that God called them to do. Why? Because they can't. And they're just as condemned, just as worthy of judgment as any Gentile. So he's talking to these Jewish Christians. And and he knows, because he is one, he knows that they are so proud of being Jews. He knows that they've been given the law of Moses. He was a a studier of the law of Moses. They're proud that they are in this incredible relationship with God like no other people on earth. He gets all this. They knew God's will. Why? Because God had given it to them in the form of the law. And because they had the law, they knew right from wrong. It was, real, it was black and white. Don't, don't do this, do this. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, I'll curse you. They knew right and wrong. And they, of all people on earth, went in a position to help others. Why? Because they had the law. They knew it existed. They knew right from wrong. And yet, they didn't. Kind of reminds me of us. We we know these things, we know right from wrong, we know the will of God, we know about the gospel, we know how people get saved, and yet we don't tell anybody. Well, I I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, show me where that's the requirement to share your faith. That's like saying, I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't have to give. Wait a minute, show me that in scripture. That's not how the gifts work. But we have the same things. We have a responsibility to teach others about God, and we don't. They didn't. And so what? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You want to brag that you're a Jew? You want to brag that you know the law, that you know right from wrong? Then why don't you do it? You dishonor God by breaking the law. See, we dishonor God when we don't obey God, when we don't live according to his will for our lives, when we don't read the word, when we don't pray to him, when we don't, we dishonor God. And he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Jews, who are so proud of the law. And I think even within this local church context, because the Jewish believers were so adamant and kind of obnoxious about, well, we're Jews, you're not. We got something you don't have. You'll never be like one of us. And it was causing the Gentiles to blaspheme God. They were getting frustrated. They were going, well, they're right. We'll we'll never, we'll never be Jews. They are better. And it was dividing the church, and it was causing dissension, both in the church but also outside of the church. It was keeping people away from the good news of the gospel. See, they, like many of us, failed to live up to our position as God's people. They had damaged God's reputation. Man, I look back at my life, and I think of how many ways I've damaged God's reputation. Things I've said, things I didn't say, ways I've acted, um, thoughts that I've thought, places I've worked in over the years where I didn't live for Christ and I blended in and I just became one of the others who didn't know Christ and they didn't know I was a Christian at all. And in doing so, I damaged God's reputation by the way I behaved, the way I acted. And so he says, your name, God's name is dishonored among the Gentiles. See guys, we got to be real careful about judging, and we got to be very careful about how we live our lives because we are meant to be salt and light in this world. And so much of the world is not attracted to Christianity because of Christ? No, because of Christians. That's a problem. We are like walking billboards for the gospel. And sometimes we're not a very good advertisement for what we say we believe. That's why he spends so much time talking to the Jews saying, you break the law, you don't keep this precepts. It's all about obedience at the end of the day. They weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, and they make a big deal out of the fact that we're circumcised. We have this special sign. We have this physical sign that that labels us as one of God's people, and the Gentiles don't. So therefore, once again, we're special. He goes, I don't care if you're circumcised three times. If you don't live... Like what you say you are, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. You know, you can say, well, I walked down the aisle, I was baptized, I went through catechism, I did all these things, I own three Bibles, one of which I've actually opened. You you can say all kinds of things, but if you don't live like you're supposed to live, the lost world looks at that and goes, so what? Who cares? What difference does it make? So at the end of the day, here's the problem. The Jews had the law. They didn't obey it. They had circumcision, which was an outward sign of this relationship with God, but they didn't live like they had a relationship with God. So it puts them in the same boat as the Gentiles, and that's all he's really trying to say. Jew, Gentile, believing Jew, believing Gentile, you're all in the same boat. You're guilty, and you have no excuse before God. God has every right to judge you, yet the lord set his heart and love on your fathers chose their offspring after them you above all peoples as you are this day circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart be no longer stubborn for the lord your god is a god of gods the lord of lords the great the mighty the awesome god who is not partial and takes no bribes see guys at the end of the day what i want you to understand is talking about the judgment of god is really really hard none of us like to hear it but if you don't talk about the judgment of god you'll never fully appreciate the justification of God made available to you through Jesus Christ because you deserve to be judged. You deserve to be condemned, but God sent his son to die for you so that you might be made right with God, not because you deserved it. You deserve just the opposite. That's the whole point. Never lose sight of the fact that this whole book is about the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is the key theme of this entire book. And so all this talk about judgment, all this talk about Jew, Gentile, moral, elitist, snob, Christian snob, do not judge because you deserve to be judged and you weren't and you won't be. You never have to fear, as Romans 8 says, any condemnation from God anymore. Your works will be judged, but guess what? You'll still get into heaven in spite of you. See, I don't know when you came to faith in Christ, but you've sinned a lot since then, right? You've been a busy boy, and he's still going to redeem you and glorify you and make you his own in heaven for eternity. That's pretty amazing. So why would I judge anybody else? Why? Well, I'm going to skip ahead. As always, I have more than I can say, more than you want to hear. But here's your first question. Based on chapter 2 of Romans, why would God be just in judging and condemning every single man and woman who has ever lived? See, that's, that's what it's all about. Everybody we know deserves to be judged, but God is offering us justification, righteousness, a right standing. Think about all the people you know who are going to be judged eternally. And why is God fair? See, we struggle with that, right? Why would God condemn anybody? No, the real question you should be asking is why, why should God redeem anybody? That's his point. Nobody deserves to be redeemed, but God has made redemption possible for men and women. We just need to tell them. Father, I pray for the time around the tables that you would bless their conversations. May they be open. May they be honest. Um, May they be challenging and rich. And Father, may you continue to drive into our hearts and minds the value of the gospel that is the power of God for salvation our sanctification, and ultimately our glorification, and that, Father, we, just like everyone else, deserve condemnation, but we've received grace, mercy, patience, forbearance, and we thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, your turn.